Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, Max Norman is our very special guest, uh, just a, a legendary producer and, uh, you know, the Hard Rock Edge for sure, but uh, all kinds of uh, things. Uh, the late, great Randy Rhodes, uh, you know, with, without this man, who knows what he would have sounded like. I, look, he was going to be great no matter what. But Max Norman is, uh, is, is a big reason why so many of these artists from Ozzy, all of Ozzy's best work, uh, came under this man. Uh, Ian Hunter, Sabotage, uh, Grim Reaper, Loudness, uh, Lynch Mob. Armored Saint Y&T, and uh, his latest, uh, it's about to come out, is uh, Lita Ford's latest, and uh, again, Max Norman here with me, Frank McKay. Max, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me, Frank. Finally, after asking me for some some years, I think you've been asking me to do this, right? Yeah, listen, I'm a big Max Norman fan, and it's uh, it's nice to get somebody that you've listened to. I, I mean, I've listened to so many of your. I can't say all of your records because I, you know, I don't have that list in front of me. But I'll tell you what, all, all the all the big ones for sure, and uh, you just have uh, you have whatever it is. You know, when they say that guy's got it or that gal's got it, you got it. And and as far as producers go, uh, you know, there's a handful of you out there that uh, that are just terrific. And so congrats on all your work and thrilled to have you finally. Well, thanks very much. Yes, yeah, so I don't know what it is. I mean, uh, I really just um, try to make things sound as good as I can to me. And uh, that's really my bottom line when I'm working with any of these people, you know, is uh, just to just to do it as the best justice that I can do and, and make it, you know, make it the best that it can be. And uh, I'm sure most producers are, are the same way. That's that's really what, you know, it's all about is, is trying to realize the artist's vision and and trying to make sure, it, you know, it sounds as, as good as it can sound and that the performances are as good as they can be and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but, in, in, you know, in the long run, a lot of this is uh, just being in the right place at the right time, being lucky enough to be asked to do stuff at the right time, and um, you know, just being in the right place at the right time. That's a, that's quite a big deal. And it, you know, I was just very lucky to be able to work with uh, all these great people. And of course, some of them no longer with us, and they seem to be uh, the the numbers seem to be dwindling as we move forward. Obviously, um, you know, lost Lee Kersley. A year or so ago and yeah. you know so it's uh it's it's a bit sad these days because um there's quite a lot of my old friends are no longer with us you know nick uh from megadeth wow. so uh you know uh, I, I i try and remember what went on and i try to uh i try to try keep all that stuff in the back of my mind so maybe i'll have to put a book together at some point and tell all the great stories you know well, uh, you know, listen, you've you've got a whole host of them, and and you know, you mentioned Nick and uh, Lee. Uh, you know, rest in peace to to, to both men, very talented yeah. uh, folks. But let me ask you about something. And you've you've seen a lot of it. You've seen a lot of talent. Uh, it, do you see a common trait with those who kind of stand out? Those who are who are stars. Those who have longevity on their side as far as a long career. Is there a common trait that you could point to and say they all seem to have blank? Uh, can you fill in that blank if there is one? 
Well, uh, that's a good question, actually. Nobody ever asked me that one. I suppose that um, they are all uh, have... Uh, uh, well, they've all got staying power, obviously. You know, somebody like Ozzy, I mean, who's still going out there. And, you know, Ozzy can still sing really well. I mean, he was always a really good singer. And uh, so to see him at this age and with his, you know, has a few uh, medical issues going on as well, but... Uh, he appears to be doing really well, and you know, uh, I got to say, all of these people like George Lynch is still out there playing, and uh, uh, Dave Minichetti is still out there playing, and these guys are as good or better than they've ever been. Dave Minichetti, especially, still sings like a bird. So I don't know what it is. Maybe it's in the water, or <laughs> I I really don't know. But they have staying power, and they. Um, and they and they have confidence in what they're doing. I think is you know so that's one of the things that makes a huge difference. And uh, I know that some people just end up quitting and 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 not not working in the business anymore. But uh, I think that the people that are still are obviously have the confidence and in, in themselves that you know they can keep working. So let me remind folks that are just tuning in. Uh, now, or, or turning on their radios a little late, Frank McKay here, but so much more importantly, Max Norman is our very special guest, and a, just a, a wonderful producer. You talk about staying power, just a, a, a long, prosperous career. He's just absolutely terrific. And uh, Max, uh, we've, uh, you know, we, we, we talk, talk to you and we talk to so many uh, different folks who do producing for a living, and there's egos and there's personalities that that you get um, that uh, that come into a, a studio. And whether you're a director in a you know in a film for a film or you're a producer, you're basically doing the same thing. You're trying to get the best performance out of your out of your artist, out of your talent. And you've worked with some personalities that that are heavy, that are real heavy personalities. And, and somehow you, uh, you know, you've been able to get great performances. Can you think of, and I'm not even asking for dirt here or any, anything along those lines, but could you think of, of uh, some advice that you'd give to someone who's dealing with different, uh, difficult personalities to, uh, to get through, at least to complete a project? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I've said this on a few occasions. Um, uh, I think the main thing is that you have to be trustworthy to the artist. So... You can't be a yes man and you can't just say, oh, yeah, that was great. Or, you know, you, you have to uh, basically uh, and you're very correct in saying that a, that a producer in a music field is, is very, very similar to a director in the film field. And um, it's really about trying to get the best possible uh, the best possible f performance and everything out of the artist. And um, in a lot of cases, uh, this comes down to overdubs. Uh, in the case of singers who probably have the largest egos out of, uh, you know, singers and guitar players, I guess, have the largest egos, I would say. But, um, they, you know, they really really comes down to a one-on-one, -on -one, like if you're doing solos with George Lynch or if you're doing vocals with Ozzy or uh, if you're doing vocals with Dave Mustaine or, you know, they rely on, they rely on your feedback entirely for for how they are doing because they're inside the bubble they're they're all you know when they do a performance and, and the tape stops or the recording stops and you know they they say you know how is it you know what what is it they're really totally dependent on the objective ear so the producer engineer and producer's job uh, 
is to is to make sure that you give accurate feedback uh, without bias, uh, which means you've got to be a bit fearless and um, you basically have to tell the truth. And and once once they understand that you you don't have any axe to grind and you're not trying to schmooze them or you know play up to them. Um, they can relax a little more and they can trust your opinion a lot more. So my, my advice to anybody doing that, you know, doing these kind of sessions is uh, be as, be as honest as possible and trust your own, trust your own judgment and give them back what they need to hear. And, and if it's not good enough, you just say, well, I don't think that's good enough. I think you can, you know, let's run it again, try and get it better. Uh, or let's fix this piece or let's fix that piece. And you get into a, uh, into a sort of, a a rhythm with the with the artist where they trust you and you can make fast decisions and you can get you can get stuff done accurately and with the minimum amount of pain and so that's really my main uh, philosophy with working with anybody is just to be as honest as possible and even though probably a lot of the time they don't like to hear that but once you've you know once you've established that you're going to not you know mollycoddle them or or just say stuff or be a yes man, uh, then everything goes a lot more smoothly because they understand that you and they and you are both on the same page and you're both trying to get the best possible results. So that's really the, the, the best advice that I would give. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and usually it pays off. You have to establish that trust. And then once they understand that you're, you're, you know, that you're both on the same page, then you can work a lot more smoothly and you can work faster and uh, you can hopefully get a better result, you know. Max Norman is the voice that you're hearing, a wonderful producer of so many uh, great albums and artists. Frank McKay here, much more importantly, Max Norman is our very special guest. Uh, Max, if you don't mind, let's do a little bit of your history. And if you can, start from the beginning. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Oh, boy. I was born in, York I was born in Yorkshire, in Harrogate, in Yorkshire, uh, back in the 50s. Um, I was only there for about three years, and then when I was about three or four, uh, my parents moved to uh, Kettering, which is in the Midlands, about 95 miles north of London. And I grew up there for the most part. Um, uh, I started playing uh, ukulele, I think, when I was about six or seven, and then I gradually uh, moved on to the guitar, and I was in bands up until I was about 16, 17, and I spent a lot of time uh, in my bedroom playing guitar and uh, listening to, uh, at that time, I suppose it would be um, uh, Eric, Eric Clapton and Cream and Jimi Hendrix and all of these new, all of this new music that all of a sudden was coming out. I started listening to The Shadows, if you even remember who they were. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah uh, what's, I can't remember the guitar player's name now. What, uh, oh, Hank Marvin. So he was a big hero of mine in, the, in that would be, I suppose, in, in the early 60s. And um, so, uh, uh, but then it got, I got a bit disillusioned with playing in bands. It was very difficult to uh, sort of get anywhere and the equipment was very expensive and we had to always had to try and find a van somewhere. So um, uh, when I was about uh, in my late teens, I went out to, uh, to Germany I answered an advert in um, the New Musical Express, I think it was, and uh, I went out to Germany to, to do live sound for a band out there, and I did that for some months. Uh, and then I came back to England, and I worked for a couple of different bands. I was uh, Manfred Mann's uh, 
Mantu Man's Earth Band I worked for, I was a spotlight operator for those guys. Um, and uh, I was a keyboard roadie for uh, Baker Gerbit's Army, Ginger Baker's band after he left Cream. So I did a few of these other things. And then um, I was a sound guy for a cabaret band for a couple of years. And we toured all over, all over, all over England uh, doing working men's clubs and these kind of uh, Friday night and Saturday night clubs. Um, and then after that, uh, I went and joined a sound company, uh, Electrosound, in London. And uh, that was a, a, a sort of a tremendous lift as I uh, ended up a few months later after joining that company, ended up going to the to the US for the first time, so it'd probably be, mm, I want to say, 75 maybe. And uh, the first tour I was on in the US was uh, Robin Trower and Jethro Tull, 6040 Co-Bill, huge tour. We did Shea Stadium and Tampa Stadium and all these huge stadiums, which I'd never seen before, so that was a huge eye-opener. And uh, so I worked with them for quite a long time. Uh, I moved over to California for a little while and I was uh, the Tubes live sound guy for a couple of years and they were a great band also so I had a lot of fun with them so I did spend quite about seven years touring uh, doing live sound and uh, rigging and stuff like that and I think that helps to uh, to know how to behave when you're with uh, artists fairly large artists stuff like that you know how to sort of hang out with them and you don't ask them for autographs and, you know, you, you, you learn how to sort of behave when you're around um, stars, if you like. So I think that was quite helpful. And then about 1980, um, my friend, uh, another Frank, Frank Andrews, was uh, uh, trying to put together uh, new equipment at Ridge Farm. So I made a deal with him that I would put all the new equipment in and uh, then he would make me the... Uh, resident engineer so that's 1980s when I moved into the studio and um, spent three or four months doing a lot of soldering and all that kind of stuff and then uh, that was I think the second SSL 4000E that had been put in in England I think the first one was at the Manor Richard Branson's Virgin studio in Oxford I think we got the second one so that was quite an auspicious thing and we got quite a lot of people coming down simply because we had that console. And that's one of the reasons I think that um, Ozzy came to work there and we did uh, quite a few quite a few records there before I left. Uh, we did Black Tiger there with YMT, uh, uh, Rough Diamond with um, Paul Rogers and uh, Bad Company and a bunch of other, obviously a couple of... Uh, the first couple of uh, Aussie records, and and we also did uh, Bark of the Moon there with Jake. Um, and that sort of brings you up to date. And I worked there until about 84, and then I started to get a lot of phone calls from uh, the U.S. and started to fly over to the U.S. and, and work with bands. And uh, that went on with that for until probably up until about 2000. And then uh, I had two very young children at that point and uh, wanted to wanted to kind of hang out with them a bit and uh, watch them grow up. So I took a bit of a respite from the music business. Um, at that point, it was sort of uh, grunge had sort of set in and uh, the, the business 
was starting to change quite radically. So I sort of uh, took a took a back seat from that and um, uh, took a job in New York, which is where I still am. And um, about 2012, um, I started to have more time. Children were off, of, off in college and all that other stuff. So I had more time. So I went back and started to uh, started to do more work mixing, which is what I've been doing the last, you know, 10 years, I guess, now. So uh, that's about it in a nutshell. <laughs> Tremendous. I, I got about a million questions for Max Norman. He's the voice that you're hearing. Frank McKay here with uh, really a, a fantastic producer, just a, a wonderful talent and a, a, a long, prosperous career, still going strong. Lita Ford, uh, her latest will be his latest. And I get a little uh, a little plug out there for Lita. She always has something great. And Max, uh, you know, when he's behind the glass, is, uh, is always great product coming out. Frank McKay here with producer Max Norman. Uh, Max, your, your career kind of makes sense to me now. I mean, you've worked with personalities um, as diverse as Ginger Baker and uh, Phoebe Wabel and, and in different uh, different settings, the live settings. So you're you're dealing with, you know, these talented, you know, super talented people, uh, in in pressurized situations, right? Live situations, uh, you know, no net, right? They're they're performing without a net. So uh, if something goes bad, you're there, and you've done everything from rigging to live sound to you know everything else that comes along with it. Uh, it would make sense. Uh, to me, that uh, that th- this would be a background for for a producer. I, I'm always blown away by the different backgrounds of successful producers, and you know, some are musicians. Uh, you know, to start with, you know, as as you were, but uh, but some, you know, like uh, are musicians, professional musicians, all the way up to when they start producing, or some are just pure engineers, and that's where they come. You you've got a nice mixture. Of uh, of experiences there, and and I guess uh, it, you've got to credit that 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 mixture that diversity with uh, with uh, a lot of your success. Before we get into any specifics, there, what what did your folks do for a living? Anybody musical? Oh yeah, well my my uh, grandmother was uh, basically a, a sort of a concert pianist. I don't think she did that many concerts, but uh, she was certainly uh, good enough to be. She did Rachmaninoff and. All these, uh, all the crazy Russian composers, and my mother was a pianist also, and um, so I suppose I got my my musicality from my mother's side. My father was uh, tone deaf; he could not carry a tune at all. Um, but uh, I suppose genetically, I got the the musicality part of it. <clears throat> I don't have perfect pitch; I have a decent pitch, so uh, that helps enormously, of course, when you're when you're working on uh, arrangements and you're working on performances, stuff like that. It's a, it, it really, it's an essential thing to have uh, some kind you know, to have good pitch and to, and to have, and to understand rhythms and to, and to be able to, you know, hear what's going on and to be able to hear what's wrong with what's going on also, of course. So, um, yeah. Um, so I was lucky there and uh, my parents, uh, my father's actually a leather factor. He, was, he uh, sold leather for a living and uh, had his tanning license and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I used to work with him uh, uh, for, I worked with him for a few years on the market selling shoes. So uh, I've, <laughs> I've had experience selling things too. So that helps a little bit, you know. 
But uh, yeah, I, I was I was lucky, and they um, they did not particularly press me about going to college. I went to college for like a year, and then I didn't really like it. And I was more interested in playing guitar and more interested in the whole musical thing. So, uh, but I was lucky that they didn't insist on any of that. They sort of let me get on with my own devices. So, uh, so in that sense, uh, it, it, they were very helpful. Yeah. Frank McKay here with producer. Max Norman. If you stepped away, let me remind everyone, you're listening to Breaking It Down, and I'm Frank McKay, but much more importantly, our guest today is Max Norman. He is uh, just a great producer and uh, music producer, and he's produced everyone from Megadeth to Ozzy to Lita Ford to Ian Hunter to uh, so many Sabotage, so many other uh, great acts, but uh, Max, welcome back. If people step well, away, welcome you. back to them, and and to you, welcome back. Uh, let me ask you something about sabotage. Um, the you know the Paul O'Neill legacy goes on, but it's not necessarily with uh, with due to sabotage. It's uh, uh, TSO, right? Uh, Trans Siberian Orchestra. This is some something. This is a project that has become. Um, as synonymous with Christmas with certain people as, you know, Rudolph the Red Nose, right? It was something. But it, uh, I, <laughs> yeah. whenever I talk to one of those guys, I always say, is there a, a, a succession plan? Like when, when we all die out, our generation dies out. I mean, will TSO uh, continue? But let me ask you, I, did you, did, when you first met the late, great uh, Paul O'Neill, did you, did you think that, uh, that, he would ever create something that that may last a hundred years. Uh, no, I didn't know actually, and I only only met Paul very briefly towards the end of uh, working with uh, Sabotage. I know John real well, and I spoke to him not too long ago. <clears throat> but um, no, I had no idea. And I, I guess uh, after I did Power of the Night, then they kind of uh, slipped into that kind of uh, more of a rock uh, opera mode. And, uh, yeah, what they're doing now, of course, is great. Um, uh, and I know quite a few of the people that are, you know, Chris Caffrey, I know, and uh, Jeff Scott Soto. And, uh, you know, like, I have a lot of friends that work on both of those different bands. And it, it's it's actually, uh, it was actually a very smart thing to do. And, and uh, of course, for right now, it's kind of what everybody's doing. Everybody's in three or four different bands and, and these bands have all become kind of fluid. And a lot of bands are actually just a cover band of themselves now, which is kind of crazy, but it seems to be continuing. Yeah, and TSO, were, I guess they were down for a couple of years because of the pandemic, but uh, I think they're back out there. I know Chris just got off got off tour with the, uh, uh, I think the Western version of there or the Eastern version. I don't know which one's which now. I think Jeff's, Jeff sings for the other one. And then uh, you've got Dino from overseas i think he's gonna he's been singing with them and yeah i mean uh, it's it, it's a great thing and it, it, they've sort of they've sort of vegas it i guess it's now it's kind of like a vegas yeah, and and I say that with the greatest respect. When I agree with you on Vegas, I say with the greatest respect. It's it's brilliant, and if, I think if they play their cards right, that there could be like a succession plan, uh, you know, to go on to the next generation, at least the next generation, and continue. The music's great, and there's interchangeable parts, and I, I, that's not to minimize any of the musicians that are that are there. But I mean, it's it's carrying on long after the death of Paul O'Neill, and he was the the creator. It was his baby. It was his vision, vision, 
And, uh, you know, hey, look, the Rockettes uh, change players all the time, and they've been going on for whatever, you know, 80 years, 100, whatever it is. I mean, why not? Yeah. But, yeah, all well, power to them. You know, I hope so. And uh, I don't know uh, I don't know what John's going to do these days. Um, I think maybe he has some health problems, but uh, uh, it'd be nice to see him back out. And uh, it's kind of a... It's kind of bittersweet, actually, because I really liked Sabotage and what Sabotage were about, and then they kind of morphed into TSO, and so now we don't have Sabotage, which is, you know, kind of a drag in a way. But you never know. Maybe John's going to put something together, and hopefully he'll come back out with a bit of Sabotage at some point. Max Norman, once again, is our very special guest. Uh, Great producer, just an amazing career, and still going strong. His resume is a mile long, and um, hey, proud to call him a New Yorker. And uh, as you can tell, he, he wasn't born in Brooklyn and raised in Brooklyn. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, maybe, I, maybe you were though. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right. I, you know, I'm talking about your accent, my accent. People, you know, all over the country, whenever I'm anywhere in the world, they're like, "Are you? Are you from New York?" And, uh, and I think, you know, it's hard to say I'm not. But uh, anyway, what really you have to look back and you have to be very proud of of what you did. Uh, when did it when did it hit you at what moment or what project was it? When did it hit you that that you have a real chance to be a big time producer? Um, was it in uh, the Aussie stages? I, I guess. Was it before that? Was what was the first big break? Um, well, I, I don't know if I ever thought that because, you know, usually you're just so busy and you're so you're down in the trenches and you're doing this stuff and you're basically just trying to do the best you can. And, and you don't know at the time, you know, people ask me, oh, you know, you were doing Blizzard. Did, did you know that Blizzard was going to blow up and be this big thing? And I had no idea. We just tried to make the best possible record. And then um the band leaves and they go out on tour and you, I start working on another record. So you don't really have that much time to think. So I, I don't think I ever thought, oh, oh, great. Now I'm going to be a big time producer. You know, it, I, I wasn't actually uh, planning on that. I was just doing the best possible thing that I could. And and I'm, it wasn't really, uh, I wasn't trying to uh, become a great anything. I was just trying to do the best possible job. And obviously as you, as you work and, you have more and more experience in the studio. You get better and better at it. And um, at a certain point, you have to look at it and say, well, you know, how much am I worth now? If I go, you know, what am I going to ask these guys for for the next deal? Um, but then, you know, in the mid-90s, everything kind of uh, fell apart. The whole record industry, as you know, kind of changed. And um, uh, sales kind of dropped out and everything like that. So... Well, thanks to I don't, Napster, right? I, I mean, they, I, you know, the theft, the legal theft of uh, of music and and material and everything else just just it, it it turned the music business on its ear, and you know, and where you know, I don't think the kids realized when they were just downloading everything for free that what they were doing. I mean, it's you know, basically like walking into uh, a guitar center here and just grabbing a guitar off the wall and just you know, running out with it. I don't think people saw it as that, but but what a what a major change in the business and uh you know that coupled with the difficulty that that it is to start with um I, what when was it when was the first time you thought my god napster's completely turned the business upside down well um 
you know, uh, sort of uh, as we were doing, I think, um, Euthanasia with Megadeth, which would be, I suppose, 94, 95. Um, uh, music business started to get very tough because uh, because of the streaming, because of Napster, etc., etc., and and sales really started to plummet. And with that, the whole uh, paradigm of uh, hiring a producer for an album uh, mostly disappeared, and that's really because there wasn't there there weren't any more budgets really coming out from the from the labels. Uh, it used to be that I would quote you know certain amount for my fee, certain amount non recoupable. Then I would prepare a budget with the studio time, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the, uh, the accommodations for the band and uh, rentals and everything else, and um, that all stopped happening all of a sudden in sort of in the mid nineties, uh, that didn't happen anymore. And the record labels weren't doing it anymore. They weren't giving people, uh, uh, budgets to, to make records. And it, it, all, it all turned into basically the record companies at, at that point started to just buy the records once they were finished because people were basically making them themselves and doing them at home. So the whole role of the producer, uh, except for very large artists, of course, took a bit of a backseat and, and it was, uh, there, there weren't that many producer jobs out there. People stopped using because, because people had all the equipment at home and they could do everything on the laptop or on a computer. I think people thought that, uh, oh, I don't need a producer now. I can do this myself, you know. Uh, I don't need an engineer. I don't need a producer. I can do it myself. M much to the detriment of many releases since, unfortunately. But you, could hear, you know, that, you could hear the difference. Well, I think somebody was saying. I was looking the other day. Somebody was saying there were eighty thousand releases in twenty twenty. Um, so, you know, the whole and as you you know from your experience in radio that, you know, in the seventies and the eighties, we we basically got stuff from good. Uh, good DJs on the radio, you know, like in England, we had John Peel in the seventies and, you know, over here we had like KNAC and some of the big rock stations in the eighties. And that was where you would uh, be able to find, you know, what you were going to listen to next and you would hear new music on there. And it was, there was a great filter system in place with uh, A&R guys, uh, record labels, you know, so only sort of decent music really in, in, in a lot of cases that, got through and all the rest of it was kind of uh, filtered out and but now uh, there are so many releases all the time that it's very difficult to sort of find a the good tree in a, in the whole forest you know so uh, that's all these things have conspired to change the music industry drastically now max norman once again is our very special guest frank mckay here uh with a production great producer extraordinaire Max Norman, and once again, uh, the Aussie work that he did was just uh, absolutely legendary. And he could have dropped the mic right after that, so to speak, and and, uh, <laughs> and and just signed off on a wonderful career. He didn't, and everyone from Megadeth, uh, you know, and well, I'm right now, Lita Ford, and it's her her latest. When that comes out, that'll be his uh, his latest. And Frank McKay here once again with Max Norman. What was the first record you? worked on right after blizzard uh what was it can you remember what you went right into yeah i think we did uh i did a couple of other things um 
think I worked on a, uh, an album with uh, Judy Zook, who was a British uh, female singer. Um, and then and we did uh, Rough Diamond with the Bad Company, the last Bad Company album to come out. And that was uh, very trepidatious because of, uh, there was a lot of internal strife in the band uh, between Paul and um, and the rest of the band, basically. And uh, that was with Boz Burrell, who's no longer with us, and uh, Mick Rouse and Simon Kirk. And so it was it was a really good band, but uh, there was a, there were a lot of internal problems with that. And then I remember when we finished that, um, the guys came back in, Ozzy came back in to do Diary. So there was, I think there were two or three. I'd have to check with Frank Andrews, who actually came in during that time, sort of the back end of uh, 1980, I guess. And then uh, then we did uh, Diary, and uh, we went to a few different places to do stuff. We went to Abbey Road to, to do strings there, and we did... we. Uh, went to Lansdowne to do the uh, uh, um, the choral uh, stuff and stuff like that. But uh, even in those days, you know, it was, uh, it was very difficult to get everything on tape because uh, we only had 24 tracks, you know. So actually, basically, you basically come down to about 22 tracks. So by the time we had to put orchestra and stuff on there, only only really had like four tracks, you know, to do it on. So that'd be like two stereo takes, and that was it, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so uh, that, that was, but, you know, every time you do a record, you learn more and more. You learn more about how to, you know, pace the singer. You can't work the singer too long per day, you know. You learn, you know, you learn to tell the drummer when you're doing rehearsals to tell the drummer to get gloves and so he doesn't cut his hands up because he, he's drumming eight hours a day and, you know, you learn a lot of these uh, production techniques as you go, and every time, every time you finish a record, you you end up with some more, some more of these, you know, uh, good tidbits, you know, stored away that you can call on when you make the next record, basically. So, Max, uh, who do you remind yourself of, uh, production-wise, and either now or a young Max Norman, or uh, you know, now you're a veteran, obviously, but uh, when you were first starting out. Who did you either remind yourself of or or did people compare you to anybody in particular? Who do you think of when I ask that? Uh, well, I don't really compare myself to anybody. Um, I, uh, I had some pretty favorite uh, producers. Uh, I'm just trying to think who was, who was good in those days. Of course, um, I was listening to stuff like, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Kramer? And, was Eddie Kramer an influence to you? So that would be Eddie Eddie Kramer. Yeah, and I know Eddie quite well, and he's you know very decent. So that was one of the things that I was kind of in awe of the fact that he was he engineered that stuff with Hendrix, and um, then of course you have Felix Papalotti who was doing stuff with Cream, and uh, so and and I also remember um, I'm trying to remember the guy's name who produced uh, Young and Rich for the Tubes because he, had, he, he got such an excellent... Uh, oh, it was... Um, he got such an excellent drum sound, and I really liked it, and I, I sort of deliberately looked him up. And uh, But uh, it was so so early on that uh, really... Uh, I wasn't so much looking at producers, but I was listening to or p perhaps emulating, you know, records that had already been out, you know, Deep Purple and, and any of these kind of you know, records that came out. I was heavily influenced uh, as a guitar player by Rory Gallagher for a long time. And I, I, I must have... Rory Gallagher. 
Loved Dwight. Yeah, and I, I loved him in Taste, and I saw Taste maybe five or six or eight times, and um, I, you know, used to say hi to him, and he was such a lovely guy. And then, and then of course, he uh, just had the Roy Gallagher band, and I saw that a bunch of times as well. And I thought he was just, uh, he was just a fantastic artist, you know. So I was lucky to be able to sort of hang out a little bit with some of these guys. And this is in the very early days. So Peter Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, for instance, would have three guitar players, you know, Danny Kerwin and Jeremy Spencer and Peter Green and. I mean, seeing and hanging out and watching these kind of bands is really where uh, you, you kind of got the, the germ of ideas from, you know. Um, but as I compare myself, well, I don't know. A lot of people used to compare me to um, Michael Wagner. I used to get compared to a lot. Michael and I know each other very well, and uh, he's, he's a great guy. And he just retired, I guess. So, you know, and I, I don't know why, but maybe he's older than Nashville, I am. I think. Didn't he end up in huh? Nashville? Yeah, he had a studio called Wild World in Nashville, and uh, I, I believe I, I seem to remember last year he just sold everything, closed it down. So I don't know if that was a financial um, uh, financial necessity, or he just got fed up with it, or whatever. But uh, he's he's certainly done a lot of comparable albums uh, to me. So we used to get compared quite a lot, I think. What are you using now? And again, if you're just joining us, Max Norman, producer Max Norman, is our very special guest. Frank McKay here with Max. Uh, what are you using as far as um, a, a digital a system? Are, are you using Pro Tools, Cubase, or does it depend on the artist? Uh, well, um, I actually mix in Cubase all the time, and uh, or Nuendo, uh, which is basically Super Cubase. Um, I do have Pro Tools, of course, because most of the stuff gets delivered yeah. in a Pro Tools format, so Normally, what I do is just take that and I export it into and drop it as a multi, drop the multi track into Cubase. And um, I like Cubase uh, uh, because it's a little easier to, for me to work with. I'm more familiar with it, been working on it for many, many years. So um, I prefer it to uh, Pro Tools. It has uh, VCAs and some of the stuff that Pro Tools doesn't have. It has a um, a control room part as well, which is very useful. So I can switch speakers and all that kind of stuff. And I use um, headphones a lot with mixing. Um, and I use, uh, you know, I have artificial rooms in the headphones, if you like, that uh, make it sound like I'm actually in a really good control room. So that's quite helpful because uh, obviously I can do this at my apartment and not have to uh, spend lots of money on a studio. Like uh, for like with euthanasia, where we built an entire studio for to record with. But so uh, that that's what I'm using now. Um, I have some basic uh, cheap sort of uh, moving fader system, and uh, basically a bunch of uh, uh, sort of uh, controllers that I use to 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 sort of simulate a console. Yeah. And very big, just a very big computer sitting underneath all of it with the. Lots of plugins and cards and all that kind of stuff. You, you said something a, a little while ago, and it just kind of went past me. And I don't know if you just pulled out a random number, if that was an actual number. Did you say 80,000 albums were released or, or re, uh, records were released in 2020? Did you say 80,000? Yeah, something like that. I, and That's unbelievable. I, 
Yeah, I just read something, and I don't know where I read it either. And it, it might be totally wrong, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was correct. Yeah. Somebody, somebody said it the other day, and I think it was something to do with this whole Spotify, you know, furor that's going on with Spotify and people leaving Spotify. And I actually Spotify a couple of years ago because uh, I, I think that they are. Uh, a bad business model and i wish actually everybody would just cancel spotify and maybe if everybody banded together we we could get people paid correctly as opposed to you know four dollars per millions plays or whatever the silly you know whatever silly amount of money people are getting paid right now you know people are going to find out that if you don't pay you know if you don't reward people for 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 making good music then you're not going to get good music and and uh, that it's very simple and um, I, I, I'm, I'm really surprised that uh, any musician or any band or any artist uh, supports, you know, supports a, a company like Spotify, which I, I don't really care about. The, the Joe Rogan thing doesn't really bother me that much, but I do care about the fact that they don't uh, renew, remunerate the artists as they should. And um, this, that goes also for not to quite as great an extent, but also to Apple Music, to Tidal, to all of the other streaming services that really need to, you know, pump money into, um, into uh, you know, artists and, and music musicians in general. I mean, unless you're a huge musician, you just don't make any money. And, of course, with the pandemic, it's a double whammy if you can't get out there and do merchandising. So, you know, uh, it would be nice if uh, anybody listening out there, go ahead and dump Spotify and, you know, well, uh, let's... Somebody, so many musicians and so many people in the music business listening uh, are probably saying amen right now. But uh, regular listeners, on, and, and I'm not disparaging uh, uh, folks, but, uh, uh, you know, some regular listeners uh, might say, what the hell is he talking about? You know, they, they might not get it. You know, I got nothing against Spotify. It's the same thing happened when when Napster happened. I I knew right away when uh, it, when Napster was coming up, and and uh, by the way, I had no you know uh, discernible um, uh, records out or or material out that I I could have lost. But I knew that this is the beginning of the end of the world um, when when Napster came forward, and that was going to be a new normal. And yeah, we were going to have to figure out different ways. Um, to use the internet, but uh, but you talk about Napster being a, a death blow to so many uh, different people out there, and uh, you know, and what you just said here, I think, echoes uh, uh, another thing. But uh, yeah, before we let you go, if you if you'd comment on that, um, you know, do do you think people are hearing this? Do you do you think people are uh, are paying attention, or is it just the artist um, screaming from the roof rooftops and and the the average folks uh, unfortunately don't care, and I think they should. I I echo what you say. Well, yeah, it, you know, it's very difficult. You know, obviously, if you you know, people now are used to uh, having everything on the phone, so uh, it, there was a you know when when it went to first it went to CDs, which was okay, but then. Nobody really wanted to walk around with those CD Walkmans. Um, the previous Walkmans on cassette were pretty good, and that that was sort of kept everybody going. And then when it went to CDs, um, it was basically sort of wasn't long before people just ripped the CDs onto like a, on, onto like a, a, a well, what is it like an iPod? I guess you know the the digital players. 
And then that wasn't very long before that just got incorporated into phones and then iPods kind of disappeared because it became redundant. And then uh, there wasn't any way or any easy way to get the CD into your phone. And and that was that was became kind of a problem. And I think it, it got glossed over by everybody because they just said, well, you know what? I can't. It's no good giving me a CD because I don't have a player. So, you know, I'm just going to go and download it because people are going to take the easiest possible route. And I, I don't blame people for doing that because, you know, they, they, they want to be able to hear what they want to hear. And that makes sense. And now that it's all shaken out and it's obviously pretty clear about, you know, the, the, way, the way we're moving forward with stuff is that it's all going to be a digital delivery. At that point, when that became clear, which I don't know when that was, maybe five years ago or ten years ago, uh, the the industry as a whole, and I, I blame the uh, RIAA and I blame the record labels and the executives for not uh, making a good enough plan to look after the artists and, and, and leaving the artists high and dry, which is not unusual for record labels and you know industry high-ups to do that. Because basically they're the lowest of common denominator, but it, it, it just it just seems a shame that that nobody turned around and said, okay, look, you know, if you're going to do this, let's put a law in place that means that you get proper money. I mean, you don't even get the same as you would get from a radio station now, which is, you know, I mean, it's just worse and worse and worse. And you know, if you're a small band and you get plays on Spotify or on Tidal or on Apple Music or any of these other uh, streaming things, you really don't get very much money. The only people that get the money are the big guys. They get paid a lot of money, you know, be it a blog, be it a video blog, be it, be it a, an album. You know, big guys like Kanye, they, they get big money, but the small guys don't get any money. And I think that's just unfair because it's the small guys that you want to give the money to. And, you know, if you don't do this, I know lots of people that have just stopped just dropped out of the music business because they just can't make it work. They can't pay the rent, you know. Yeah, it's epidemic, uh, no question about it. Listen, I could talk to you forever. Uh, hopefully I can get you back for a part two and a part three. Max Norman, congratu okay. congratulations on an amazing career, still going strong. Uh, can you give us a website, a social media site uh, where we could follow along with what you're doing and, uh, and anything else you want to add before we leave? Uh, yeah, I, uh, well, thank you very much for having me on. I know it's been a long time coming. I know you've been like asking me for, for possibly years, maybe years, and I'm terribly sorry that I haven't replied. That's all right. But, uh, now. Yeah, well, we can absolutely do another one anytime you want. Um, uh, yeah, I've been, like I said, been working on Lita. Uh, been, I'm actually mixing a, um, a Canadian band right now uh, from uh, a guy called Zach Ben. Uh, I'm not sure what he's calling. We're not sure what he's calling the uh, name of the band yet, but that's coming out real good. That's kind of a heavy, heavy, uh, sort of semi-melodic heavy metal band. Uh, that's coming out really good. I'm almost done with that one. I've uh, been mixing a local New York band, Ten Ton Mojo. Those guys are around. They've been gigging around the area, and we've been mixing some stuff for them over the last year. And so uh, I, I, I still have a real nine-to-five job also, so uh, I don't do too much mixing yet, but that's, good. that's about to change probably in the next year or so. Uh, and then I'll actually will be back actually doing producing as well as mixing. So we'll see what happens with that, you know. Max, thrilled to have you. 
Uh, congrats once again, and thank you very much for being here. I can't wait to hear Lita's latest and your latest on, on that work. Max Norman, thanks for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Frank McKay signing off. Max Norman, uh, the incomparable Max Norman, and uh, you know his work from, from Ozzy and, uh, and Ian Hunter, you know, Lita, Lita Ford, of course, Megadeth. Uh, Grim Reaper, Sabotage, uh, so many others. A great resume and an amazing career. Max Norman has been our very special guest, and we'll see you all next time on Breaking It Down.